If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hi everyone and welcome to the show. My guest today is former Navy SEAL Rich Divini. I love this conversation. Rich has a book coming out tomorrow and it is called The 25 Attributes and it's 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance. And I know sometimes, you know, we're always talking about performance and peak performance and all of these things, but it still comes down to ideas and information that help us perform as human beings. You're all trying to perform at a high level at no matter what you're doing. So if you're a working parent, a college student, whatever it is, interested in some kind of optimal performance. And Rich really breaks it down, some really fascinating things between attributes and skills. And he learned this, he had a 20 year career as a Navy SEAL with 13 deployments. And he got recruited to put together these high performance teams within the SEALs. So you can imagine his understanding of collaboration, what types of people, putting them together, and, and really the differentiating point between, you know, we can learn a lot of skills, but what are our natural attributes that help us contribute that to the group or the mission that we're in? I love this conversation. I love Rich. He is a kind and gentle man, as most warriors are, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, Rich Divini, thank you for coming to my house. I just want to start off by saying occasionally when I do these, I have the opportunity to train within the pool. I know you've had 21 years in the SEALs, but I saw some stuff in the pool that I was like, oh, that's why he was there that long. I want to get into your book about attributes, which really drills down on the difference between, you know, elemental attributes versus skills 
And I think it can be applied to just so many things. For you guys, it was military, sports teams, CEOs. And I even feel like within, I don't want to say family dynamics, but there's probably some things that if we could learn to identify and use people for their strengths, it would be maybe maybe a little more fluid. Yeah. But I really first want to talk about you. Okay. Because I, you know, doing my homework, you said you were an average student, an average athlete. I think you even said in some subjects you were below average, which I find hard to believe. And then you decided your dad and your twin brother, right, were pilots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you that, first of all, wanted to go to the SEALs, which is also one of the hardest things to do, to get through BUDS training and to not only finally get in, and then you're, you know, you did 13 deployments in you was like, oh, that's something I, I think I can do, and I, I'm interested in doing. Yeah, my dad was a he had a private pilot's license, so we'd go flying with him every weekend, which is one of the reasons why we actually didn't track sports. We weren't really big sports fans. All my friends would be talking about the the weekend football game, and we we're like, well, we didn't see it because we were flying with my dad. And so, uh, so my twin brother and I were sold immediately, and and we had a cousin. One of our cousins was a an A seven pilot in the Navy, and this was before Top Gun, by the way. But we were like, okay, we want to be. Navy pilots, you know, because get, they get to land on ships, which is the hardest. And, oh, by the way, when you're in the Navy, which my cousin said, when you're in the Navy, you're always on a coast. You know, you, the, the bases are always in some beach area. So that's cool. We had that in our, we had that locked in our brains at like seven years old, eight years old. And of course, Top Gun came out and it just solidified everything. But it wasn't until the Gulf War in the 90s, in 91. Right after that, there was an article in Newsweek, and it, it was called Secret Warriors, and there was a guy with a camouflage face on it, paging through that article. And it was about, I would guess, maybe five to eight pages with it, like 25, 30 pictures of different spec ops guys. And it re really outlined all the special operations. And it had you know pictures of guys in, in scuba gear, guys in the desert and jungle, in, um, in you know, uh, uh, skydiving, hey-ho stuff. And what I noticed was out of the 25 pictures, like 20 of them were SEALs and they were just all in different environments. And I was like, who are these guys? You know, and so I started learning about Navy SEALs and it's like, man, that these guys do all of that. That's cool. And plus they were, they, they, it was the water. You know, I, we grew up in Connecticut on the beach and I was a water rat, all of us were. And I just loved being in the water. And the fact that these guys, you know, but we know, I mean, the water is the most humbling environment <laughs> to know other than space, I guess. But uh, it's cold. It's there's pressure. It's just unforgiving. And their motto was, "No enemy will be dumb enough or brave enough to follow you into the water. So if you get in trouble, go there." And I was like, the audacity of that, of making that, making that place your safe place. Mm. I just loved it. And so, and how old were you? At that point, I was just getting ready to go to college. Um, so in the early, so I went to, I graduated high school in 91 and then went to went to Purdue, got a Navy scholarship. And so that decision-making process was a few years. Do I be a pilot? Do I be a SEAL? But ultimately I said to myself, I never wanted to be a pilot. I knew I could be a pilot. I never wanted to be sitting in the cockpit of my jet and look over at, SEAL, at a bunch of SEAL guys and be like, I wonder if I could do that. So yeah, that's what I did. And, and it kind of, it was, it was, it was this drive, I guess, to also just be different. And, you know, you're right. I was an average student, average athlete, you know, the nothing special really had a nice, very nice upbringing. No complaints. I think I just wanted to test myself. And so I went. When you were growing up, I mean, I think all of us, it's interesting. And I think everybody experiences it differently. And if, if you don't do this, then you're sort of an anomaly. But I feel like in your teens, you kind of are in certain ways trying to find a group and fit in. Yeah. Every once in a yeah. while you have a person who is courageous early and, yeah. <laughs> and they get called weird and all, all that. But yeah. you you have a twin brother. Were you close to him? Very. 
Yeah. We, right. Are you similar or different? We're identical. Yeah. Uh, so so that's one of the reasons. So when you when you grow up as an identical twin. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. where does this need or or like significant identification of like, I think I'd like to feel different. You don't really have your own identity. You're always associated with another person, especially mm-hmm. when you're identical. In fact, I remember getting, I remember we, they'd say, oh, we're not going to just call you by your friend. We're just going to call you Divini. Because if we call you Divini, we're always right. And so that that almost hurt me because it wasn't, well, no, my name's Rich and his name's Andrew. Um, and that actually translated. I went to, I remember going to military training and saying, Divini. And it'd be like, ah, don't, don't call me Divini. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a visceral thing. So, um, so yeah, I think this, this internal desire to separate, to stand out, to do something different was, was somewhat, and it really this fascinated, this real fascination. I have a fascinating, I have a fascination with identities and how we, as humans kind of stack these, these things. And, and then oftentimes, you know, inhibit the, the full, breadth of that persona, whether it's SEAL, whether it's athlete, whether it's a Harley guy, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's like, oh, I just want to strap all this on. So, um, so yeah, that was a, that was a driving factor, I think. And what's the process from when you decide, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue trying, attempting, Mm -hmm. because everybody just attempts to be a Navy SEAL. There's no like, well, I just go through the process and get in. I I mean, what's the, what's the, Success rate through buds fifteen percent right eighty five right? drop right so well I always say the process to buds starts before you ever get there right because you you get people all the time when you're a Navy SEAL saying oh yeah Navy SEAL I I wanted to be a Navy SEAL you know I just this and this and this and and so all SEALs when they hear that by the way if if you're someone who says this every SEAL in their head is like well that means you 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 quit before you got there and you don't say that with any judgment by the way I mean this is this is a profession that is specific for very specific people, right? So there's no judgment with that. In fact, there is, most of us uh, will, will, will actually honor those who quit because, you know, hey, listen, you decided it wasn't for you. That's actually perfectly okay. And if, you, and if it's not for you, you you're probably, we don't, probably don't want you there anyway, you know? So, um, so it's okay, it's okay to quit. But, um, but once you get there, you know, you're, you're called out from that group. And then we started, it was something in the 160s, uh, 165, I'd say, candidates started, and we graduated 38. And your attributes and your skill sets got you through. Definitely more attributes. And uh, and I think the, 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 grits, the grit attributes come first, right? The courage, the perseverance, the adaptability, the, the resilience. And, and where those developed, I've, I'm still autopsying that for myself in terms of how did I develop that? Does your brother have that? I think he does. You know, I, I tend to believe that if my brother went through SEAL training, he would have made it as well. Although I joke with him that he wouldn't. But yeah, I think those are the grit attributes, definitely. The drive attributes for certain, because you have to be able to have that self-efficacy and that discipline to be able to move towards that and not give up even with the highs and the lows. And I always say discipline is not just about moving through the challenges. It's about not getting seduced by the highs. Because some people get, you know, like, oh, that was a that was a win, and they get off track, right? No, no, that's just a, that win is just a step. You know? Well, and it takes a lot of energy it when does. you do it that way, because then also, what, if something behind it is tough, then you get you fall further. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's 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 pretty brutal. So so you you get through. I know that you. I, how long were you in the seals before you were in charge of putting together an elite group within the seals? It was almost ten years before I got to get to the specialized command, really quite a goal for me. Um, and then another um, five years or so before I was able to run that training and selection. So it was a good 15 years, roughly, I would say maybe between 12 and 15 years before I got to be running it. And that's really, that was probably the best, if I were to, if I were to pick a time that I enjoyed the most when I was a, in, the, in the teams, that was it, you know, um, because 
I was I got to see inside, and I also got to do this analysis. And I was I've always been fascinated with what allows people to do extraordinary things. Because on the you know at the end of the day, we're all quite average, and we all and we're all actually buffoons in certain contexts, and we're all superstars in other contexts. So so what is it that allows people to find the context inside of which they're a superstar versus get trapped into the one that they're a buffoon or know enough about themselves so that they say. I'm avoiding the buffoon ones, or when I get into it, I'm going to be a buffoon, so I'm going to lean on other other people. Let's say extreme athlete that I know has the ability also to call it, mm-hmm. you know, and I think people have to understand people going through Navy SEAL training or, you know, climbing a serious mountain or what have you, with courage and um, certain skills and experience, they will be the ones to say, it's not right today. Or right. I won't be able to do it. Yeah. And you just said something I think that's really important, which is to recognize, because none of us are all things at all the time, ever. Yeah. And it's realizing like, oof, I'm moving into terrain that's either I'm not good at or I'm uncomfortable. And if I can actually surround myself with people that can help me through it, I think that's a really powerful thing to go through life with. Yes, yes. And so it's funny because you know, the coin I gave you says failure is not an option, right? That's what I like. I, never, I don't like never quit. Right, because sometimes quitting is necessary. You know, mm-hmm. um, sometimes sometimes you have to tactically withdraw, and so that you can fight another day. Failure, you can still tactically withdraw and still not fail. Right, so so uh, of course when you're in buds, never quit. Right, <laughs> well, know, yeah, pretty, pretty binary. It's right? over. Yeah, yeah so but uh, in life, in combat, in anything else we do, the ability to see the situation for what it is, understand your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, understand, hey. This is not when I'm going to win, and and withdrawing right now is the better choice, mm-hmm. so that I may attack it again, assuming that's a that's an option. Yeah. We couldn't do that in 2020, by the way, but really do that so that you can come at it and and not fail at the end of the day. Right, and it's realistic. Yeah, I think you have to if you stay in reality. That's exactly. You right. know, people think bravery is like I go no matter what. It's like no, that's kind of a level of stupidity. Uh, totally. And yeah, <laughs> bravery is also assessing correctly, and and yeah. we and you you talk about um, being able to make assessments, and when you're you know, in charge of finding the best personnel for this elite group, I think it was like maybe 10% of the guys were getting through. And this was, these were guys who already had five and 10 years yeah, experience. Yeah. A little bit higher. It was about 50% in that, in that case. Oh, okay. Um, but even 50%, when, you, when you're talking about experienced guys, is a lot. And in, in some cases, too many, when you're getting asked questions about why, mm. which you can't answer better than... By them or by the higher-ups? Or both. both. By both. Because, because if oh. you, a, guy, a guy at that point in his career puts himself on the line to do that. And then comes through the process and is ultimately told, "Sorry, you didn't have what it takes, or you didn't cut it." And that guy leaves and he's upset, you know, and he doesn't know why or what to do, and 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 that will that will have a compounding effect on not only him but probably those who he is in charge of or is with as he goes through the rest of his career. So we wanted to make sure we were um, mitigating that, uh, but you know, but in the meantime, you know, the, the senior folks were like, "Hey." Tell us why this is happening, and 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 to their credit, it was it was something that we needed to better study and articulate. And I happened to be taking over when my CEO was like, "Hey, start start looking at this and and articulate it if you can." This leads us to to your new book, uh, "The Attributes: Twenty Five Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance." And what I appreciate about this is it's also not saying, "Hey, when everything is perfect and optimal." How do we have optimal performance? You're sort of saying, hey, what I'm interested in is how do we do that in suboptimal perform, you know, conditions? That's right. How do you even, you know, start the process of saying, okay, well, I'm going to have these buckets of attributes versus skills, mm-hmm. which by the time you have guys in the Navy SEALs five to 10 years in, their skill set is 
pretty high. Pretty yeah. high. Yeah. And where? How did you get the wherewithal to start to you know peel these apart mm-hmm. and say, okay, I'm going to drill down on these, and th- this is where things are starting to separate. It was really, it was really as we looked at our training process. Our training process, our, well, it was really, it was called selection ass- assessment, selection training. Okay, mm-hmm. it was all three of those. But really, it was uh, you, you'd put guys into environments of where you say, okay, we're going to teach you how to do this particular form of skydiving. We're going to teach you how to. Um, clear room, CQC, close quarter combat, which for your audience is just the act of being able to run into a building, clear rooms in, in, a, in a manner that gets you either to, to an objective inside that building or gets the whole building secure. And that's an art. It really is. So on this point, there was somebody, I think, who actually got cut during this process that right. was talking to a friend of mine. And I think what he said, and this is a highly kind of decorated, celebrated seal, is that the way his eye movement, something about when he was going in to clear the room, he wasn't looking in the correct ways. Laird and I talked about this, but think about this. Maybe if you've been deployed X amount of years or days and hours, and you've been in those situations for X amount of hours, you wonder if guys like that too, if it had been five or 10 years earlier, it's almost like, I feel like sometimes we have a wick connected maybe to our nervous system or something where it's like, no, I've used those hours up a little bit. I don't know, but I was always curious, like on some of these guys, did you think it's like, hey, they're just, they've kind of maxed out parts of these skills in real live combat or in real live deployments. Was that, was that ever part of? It's a great question. I think, I think I would, I would more define it as uh, generated a set of habits inside of a particular domain, i.e., CQC in this mm-hmm. in this in this context. This is where it kind of started hitting me. Is we were basically teaching guys our own way. The way we did that was we started them at the very basics, which is like dry. Your pistols are dry, which you have no ammo, and it's like two man room entries, right? And then ramp them up pretty fast, pretty rapidly. What we needed to do, we needed them to learn our own techniques because everybody at that at that command was doing it the same way. And Their language, to, and you have to speak that language, yeah. right? So they have to be able to do that. So the, the, the previous um, debrief would be, I'm sorry, you couldn't cut it at CQC, right? But if you start breaking it down, you say to yourself, wait a second, it's more than that because CQC, and it's this, this person you're referring to, is it's a great example. His eyes weren't moving properly. This is, the CQC is probably 90% of these, these mental acuity mm-hmm. attributes and maybe 10% physical because it is such a drill in situational awareness. Can I, can I run into this room and take in very rapidly, everything I need to take in. Compartmentalization, okay, now from what I just took in, can I focus directly on what I need to focus on? Task searching, once that's complete, can I come back out and refocus on something new? And then learnability is, okay, what went wrong? As we ramped up guys in this process, you could see the guys who couldn't keep up. So which attributes were not there? Basically, <laughs> yes. that's that yes. kind of heightened environment right. started to really show you. That's right. I find it interesting because you figure these are, and why would you say it's an art form? Certainly physical art. It's uh, it's typically a a real, it's a dance between attributes and skills. That's what it is. One of those things that continuously improves, gets better. It's like that whole mastery is a journey. You're always just trying, it's like a martial art, really. That's what CQC, when done correctly, is quite beautiful, <laughs> even even though it sounds pretty violent, um, which I suppose it is. But when you when you watch it done correctly, it's, it's like you're watching a flock of birds. There's, there's, there's intuitive movement. You know, people are just moving because they feel the other person. It's just very flow. Yeah, it's like a dance. Yeah, it's like a dance. It's like watching flow in, you know, in, mm-hmm. you know, right in front of you. And so, uh, and that takes a level of skill. You know, you need to be able, you need to be able to point, aim, and fire your weapon. That's a skill. Um, and attributes. You need to be able to to mentally understand that 
that environment, process it properly. And then even in the training realm, if someone was screwing up, for example, and we kept on yelling at that guy and he was spiraling down, that shows us how resilient they are. You know, because if you can't, if you can't shake it off and keep moving, now again, we're talking about a, a highly charged environment. So, so normal people, this is not, you know, this is not a normal level of resilience we're looking for, um, but you can see it. How would somebody first start identifying, hey, what attributes do we need? Skills are not inherent to our nature. We, are, we learn them as we go. We're not born with the ability to throw a ball or ride a bike or, or drive a car, right? So, so they're, they're learned and they can be taught or, we're, or we learn them by observing others and we just implement that. Or we can actually learn them just um, as, a, as a net result. You and I, as we're using the computer day after day, we learn how to type, right? That's a skill. So they also direct behavior. They tell us what to do in certain situations. Here's how to drive a car. Here's how to ride a bike. Here's how to throw a ball. And as such, they're very easy to see and assess and measure. You can see how well people do those things, right? So throughout history, they've been very important in defining performance. You know, this is how well someone does something. Um, the problem is uh, they're not the only tests of performance, and they typically only show you how you perform when things are going correct in that context. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, in that yeah. contained in environment. In that contained environment, right. So uh, so I can, as long as someone's driving a car, in, you know, I can see how well they're driving that car, right? Um, it tells me exactly. Attributes are, are different. They're inherent to our nature. We're actually born with them. We can see levels of perseverance in, inf- not in infants, but certainly very small children, perseverance, adaptability, things like that. So you can see those levels that we're born with them. We certainly develop them over time. They don't direct behavior. They inform behavior. So my son's level of adaptability and resilience, for example, uh, and perseverance is going to is going to show me or inform me on how he's going to be when he's learning how to ride a bike, when he's learning the skill of riding a bike and he falls down 20 times, you know, that his levels of those things are going to inform his behavior. And then as such, because they're hidden that way, they're very hard to assess, measure, and test. You can't see them directly. They are the most visceral and visible during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Uh, and the reason is because as soon as the environment becomes uncertain, it's hard for us to apply a known skill to an uncertain environment. So we're starting to lean on those attributes. We can see someone's patience, adaptability, because they need those things. And I just, I use 2020, you know, we, we're all through the year, right? And, and we all got through it. And we can think about that year as just, gosh, that was the, maybe the worst year ever for some of us. Um, it, it's certainly a, uh, certainly a hard one. We all got thrown deep into challenge, stress, and uncertainty. Let's just say COVID, for an example. We, you know, almost overnight, we're all thrown into you know quarantine. You know, and very few of us had skills from which to draw day one of quarantine. We're like, okay, most of us were saying, okay, what do I do now, right? And we started to understand, probably unconsciously, until you know, you, you re- until you read the book, maybe probably unconsciously, but understand what attributes we have more of and have less. Some of, for some of us, the adapt the, the adaptation was fairly easy. We're like, okay, I'll just do this. For some of us, it was very difficult. You know, mm-hmm. that shows us our levels of adaptability. Now, what I what I kind of purport is that all of us have all of these attributes. You know, you know, and and there's no judgment to this to to these no. attributes. Right? We all have all of them. The difference in each one of us is the levels to which we have. So so my level of adaptability may be higher than say yours, or yeah. your levels of resiliency may be higher than mine. And again, it's not, it's what we show up with, but I found it to be important in understanding our performance as individuals to say, okay, what is the palette that I show up with uh, of, of attributes and their levels? And then when we talk about teams, it's certainly important because we say, okay, what what does this team need contextually? So, so to get back to your original question, when you're looking at what a specific team needs, first you have to sit down with the team with as you know with as many different people as you can on that team and say okay 
what are those inherent qualities that we're looking for? And so volleyball would be a great example because volleyball it would would be kind of um, at least on on the surface a very skills based uh, sport. But the yeah. but your level of volleyball takes a lot more than skill, right? So so the question is when you're playing volleyball at that level, what are those other what are the attributes that actually come into play? And so you start you start generating lists. Whenever you do this, by the way, because we did this with our with our teams when we were doing it with the the seal selection, your list will be a, a, a combination of skills and attributes. It's 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 going to happen because we get we they get conflated all the time. So make the list go unconstrained. Only after you make the list, start separating those skills and attributes. And the the the, the classic the, the the way you do that is you apply those those qualities that I just described to each one. Great shot. Well, shooting is a skill. You know, even in some cases, uh, you know, great physically can run the can run the the five mile in whatever time. Right. Yeah. That's actually a skill. You know, what what you could dig into is what are the attributes that cause that person to be able to run that fast, right? Or or you know, that, there might be some discipline there or things mm-hmm. like that. But even physical standards are, are oftentimes skills. So you, you you call the skills, and you're left with this list of attributes, and say, okay, this is what this is what we're looking for. Then you set about thinking about ways you can test for that or develop that, and it has to again be contextual, right? So throwing a a group of accountants into the surf zone in in California is going to show me how they you know what attributes they have that are applicable to maybe be seals, but yeah. not going to tell me much about you know what they need to be great accountants. Then you have to add like the work environment. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of like you guys are in real situations where it's like, no, literally, who are you going to be in a foxhole with? Right. Who's going to have your back and not freak out or make bad decisions, period, Yeah. because you can't afford that. But I think sometimes in work environments, when you hear words like, oh, it turned toxic, you know, the boss isn't empathetic or somebody will turn on somebody in a time of discomfort versus saying, wow, I'm this, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what to do. Can we have to figure out how to work this out? You talk about this dream team paradox, which I, I love, which is like, hey, if we got the best center and the best point guard and the best, you know, big shooter forward, well, we can win. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. It's not the case. It's uh, Russell Ackoff, who I quote, I love his stuff. He says, the, a system is never the sum of its parts. It's the product of their interaction. We know this, whether it's a sports team, a SEAL team, any team, if the parts don't interact efficiently together, that team will fail. It doesn't matter how good they are. And the, the example he's given, which I, I repeat in the book, is this idea is if you took the best part from every best automobile, right? So so perhaps the BMW BMW has the best brakes on the market, right? Saab has the best, best steering. Mercedes has the best engine, right? You take those best parts and you put them right in, in the, into the same vehicle uh, and create a vehicle from those parts. Are you going to have the best vehicle in the world? And the answer is no, you're not going to have a vehicle because the parts don't fit, right? It's going to be just a, a pile of junk. We have to think about teams in terms of their interaction and human interaction is inherently complex, which means it's unknown. It can be uncertain, which means translates to when we put together teams, we have to consider attributes. We can't just consider skills. Skills, of course, is, are important. They always will be. But if we want to know how the team's going to, to operate when things go south and when the skills aren't necessarily applying or the skills are failing, we need to see how empathetic we are, how patient we are. And of course, and, and again, every team has its own set. Volleyball players, perhaps, Navy SEALs, don't need a surfeit of empathy you know, for that, you know, we don't need a lot, right? Whereas a team of nurses does, you know? So so you have to be able to understand which, this is where, this is the only place where I would say you can grade or quantify the importance of attributes. In in us as humans, there's no judgment, okay? Whether or not I'm adaptable or not doesn't, there's good, bad, there's no good or bad. 
In teams, however, not being adaptable on a SEAL team is bad, right? You, you're, just, you're not going to do well uh, if, you're, if you're not adaptable, which is why BUDS is what it is. Not having a lot of empathy as a nurse is bad, you know? So, so you, can, you can place value on attributes when you start putting them in contexts of teams, which is important to, to, to recognize. Uh, but the, dream, the true dream teams, and this is, you know, the great example is the 1982 Miracle on Ice hockey team, right? You look at the, you look at the way they put that right. team together, and he had a bunch of people who just, he wanted to be able to work together, right? And what did they do? You know, they won the gold medal. It was a, it's a perfect example, especially in sports, of how the best players sometimes weren't the best choices, you know, because even in athletics, we've seen dream teams go out and like, well, they, they didn't really do as well as we, <laughs> yeah. we thought, right? Do you think that there's certain people, because I've seen, and you've seen it in Navy SEALs, and I've seen it certainly in sports, where you feel that Listen, skills are developed, but there's certain people where they've they've arrived a shorter road to yeah. being good at certain skills. Yes. Sometimes have seen a lot of people who it's almost like they didn't have to dig into their attribute bag as much because certain things getting to the skills, which at that time seemed like enough, was easy. So it was funny because as you move further down the road, you have more difficult situations. It was actually the people who had attributes that could get them through it yes, yes. versus they naturally jumped high or mm -hmm. were quick or could go for miles and miles. Yeah. So I always found that an interesting thing. And obviously that's why people who have enough of both are pretty dangerous yes. in a great way yeah. and impactful. But it, I always wondered, I was like, is that nature's way of keeping it even for the yeah. rest of us, like poor slobs who are just trying to figure it out when you have somebody who is so naturally their eye-hand coordination, yeah. whatever, their foot speed, just their dynamic physically. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we have to, we have to remember that, that, you know, nature designed that so that, that, that those who are, who were predisposed with called super physiology yeah. was in service to the group. Right, those those people who could run fast and had the great eyesight were the guys who hunted, you know, and brought back the food. We're in a society where that's not necessarily the case, right? So, so those types of physical gifts, you know, can be can be accessed and and actually capitalized on in different ways, you know. And I, you know, I say, you know, no one's born with the ability to be a great volleyball player or football player or any any sport. Um, what I would say is those 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 that do have the attributes that allow them to pick up those, skill, those skills very quickly. Learnability, those who are fast on learnability um, pick up skills very quickly. We all know people, you show them something once and they got it. You know? I know. I'm not that person. It takes me a while. You might learn, my learnability is low, but if, you're, if you have high learnability, things are going to, you're, you're going to be able to do things pretty quickly. Again, we talked about uh, the mental acuity and situational awareness and being able to compartmentalize things. You know, these are all these different attributes that I think we all sort of have touched on, but then when you really break them out, you start to see where they show up in a big way in your life, mm -hmm. not your partner, even your kids. Yeah. Maybe explain how you, you sort of identified and, and broke these out. Mental acuity, there are you know four. So situational awareness, compartmentalization, task switching, and learnability. As we go into, as we, so situational awareness, we, we, we take in 11 million bits of information a second through all of our five senses. And our brain is doing a massive amount of deselection all the time, right? So there's things that, that we're noticing or feeling that we're not, we're just, our brain's saying, no, never mind, right? We, both of us are feeling the bottoms of our feet right now. We only now notice it because we decided to notice it. But until I said that, yeah. it was just happening. Our brain was like, not important. Situation awareness is, the, so by the way, so that's, that's 11 million bits that's getting filtered in. Our frontal lobe, right, can only really process about 3,000, 3, something like that. Massive deselection. And then, of course, we are choosing and deciding on some of those 3,000 bits, you know. Situation awareness is your ability to take in 
as much of that 3,000 as possible under, and, and really and notice it, right? Uh, because even out, out of that 3,000, you know, some of us are like, well, I'm going to notice one or two, you know. So those of us who are more vigilant, you know, so vigilance is really the, the key, you know. Because you say your learnability is something that you have, you're working on, but that this is, that for you, you're high in, in this I'm area. high in, this, at, in situational awareness, yeah. yeah. I, I'm pretty vigilant. In fact, in fact, I, you know, I'm, I would probably skew to hypervigilance. Always? No. In fact, I've, I've learned uh, to, to, to dial that back. You know, this is this is where a lot of guys and gals coming back from combat have mm. issues because when you're in that combat environment, you are forced to be hypervigilant. You're noticing everything. That is stressful on the system. You know, it's necessary when you're out there, stressful on the system. So when you come back, if you can't turn that off, suddenly you're noticing too much. And yeah. and and you're and because you don't have a focused reason. You, you feel overwhelmed. So so people who can't dial that back have issues. How do you dial it back? Through compartmentalization, which is the next one, right? So that, so compartmentalization is now, so we take in those bits and then the compartmentalization is, is so I don't talk about the psychological part, you know, the psychological definition, which is I'm blocking this out so I don't have to think about it. It's really the, it's the way the brain takes information, it assesses that information, then it prioritizes it and then it, and then you focus, you choose to focus. So so it's it's the ability to say, okay, what am I, what is my goal right now? For the conduct of that goal, what is the information out of that, all that stuff I'm noticing that I need? You know, because then you do a whole nother. So if I'm, I think I, think I give the example of, of finding your gate, you know, and you're late for a flight, finding your gate. So so you're running through the airport, you're you're noticing the the Hudson News and the Chili's and, and all that stuff and the gate numbers and your brain says, okay, what don't I need? Right. Mm. I don't need Hudson News or bathroom or chilies. I need to know gate. You know, I need to see gate numbers. Maybe the the map. Maybe my phone app. Right. So you you dial it down. You prioritize out of those things. What's the what's the most effective thing that I can focus on right now? Well, I just passed a map, so I'm not going to walk back. So that, that down the list. My my iPhone's not updating as fast. So, but I got the gate numbers. So I'm going to I'm going to focus on that. Right. So now I I choose to focus on the gate numbers. Now that's compartmentalization. This attribute, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. This happens pretty naturally. It does. And so for a person, let's say who this isn't high on their list, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, shiny things. And mm -hmm. they see, you know, Taylor Swift is on the cover of a magazine yes. at the yeah. Hudson News versus like Gate 28 or what have you. Right. Are there things people can do? Can they give themselves like no focus or I don't, I'm making it up. First, any attribute can be developed. Let's get, you know, you're, so you're hundred percent right about that. You can develop any attribute. It just takes, it takes self-motivation, self-direction, and then it takes deliberacy. You have to consciously decide to do it and then you can develop. In terms of the mental acuity ones, it's a little bit different. So, so focus and urgency will actually help compartmentalization. So for example, the person who's typically like, oh, you know, Taylor Swift and news, if that person's late for a flight, it's it's a lot easier for that person to say no no focus I you know because that because the urgency uh, that that goal basically focuses if if it's la di da or whatever or you know whatever you know you, there's not a lot of urgency then it's going to take a deliberacy say just like it wasn't even what you said is actually perfectly spot on stop I need to focus what am I focus it's a it's a it's a reminder it has to be conscious because we have to understand that unconsciously we're in a default to the attributes that we have more of or less of so it has to be a conscious decision. As I sit here wearing my Blue Blocks glasses reading copy for this ad, I'm always reminded that I love it when companies are born out of necessity. The founders were really unhappy with the quality and lack of science, that's important, behind leading blue light blocking glasses brands. I had a pair that was given to me by a friend. I was always wearing them sort of later 
I'm not a great sleeper, so I was always trying to figure out how to deal with light. And then when my girls got stuck at home with COVID, I didn't want them staring at a screen all day. And you'd think, okay, well, how could I have them and the girls have them? Well, they've got over 20 frames in the latest fashion trends, and they come in prescription, non-prescription, and even readers, which I hate to say, I'm hitting the 1.0 right about now. Um, and they have, you know, we hear about blue light really being tough, digital eye strain, you, you know, blurred vision, headaches, things like that. And we're not going to be away from technology. So how do we manage it and make it impact us even less? And these guys are really serious. They have, it's backed by the latest science. It's made under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. So they're not just sort of slapping colored lenses into some frames and telling you, this is going to help you. It's really understanding about how light impacts health. And so Blue Box has a great offer for you if you want to try to sleep better and just, again, you know, put some of the impacts of our, some of the things that we have to be doing in our lifestyle and have less of a negative impact on us. So you can go to Blue Blocks today. You can get free shipping worldwide. That is a big deal. They are all the way in Australia and get 15% off the code using the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y. So you go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Remember, no E. So B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And you can do slash Gabby, or you can just go ahead and put in Gabby at the checkout to get your 15% off and free shipping. So when it comes to exercise, there's really no way to make it easier. You just have to do the work. However, when it comes to eating good, Sakara has a great offer for you today. Now, once you get deeper into the practice of moving and eating well, you, you realize how important it is to eat well. And, and maybe you've been curious about plant-rich ingredients and a plant-based diet or plant-based food. And Sakara is a wellness company, and they're really rooted in the transformative power of plant-based food and what it can do for you. And they have, because we all know we're not going to eat something that's good for us if we don't enjoy it. So they've got organic, ready-to-eat meals and ma- that are made from powerful plant-rich ingredients, and they're designed really to support you and make you feel your best. They have breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. They change weekly. They're chef-crafted, so you've got someone who's really considering how flavors and ingredients work together, and they deliver fresh anywhere in the U.S. Maybe you're stuck at home and you're wearing six hats, you're running out of inspiration, or maybe you're just curious about how would I incorporate more plants or go on a plant-based diet. Well, Sakara makes that so easy. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash Gabby Reese. That's S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash Gabby Reese, G-A-B-B-Y-R-E-E-C-E, or just go ahead and enter the code Gabby Reese at checkout. And besides having these delicious plant-rich meals, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials for optimal nutrition. Sakara's supplemental packs called the Foundation and their Metabolism Super Powder delivers support for gut health, energy, immunity, and healthy skin. So head to Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com. And remember, put in the code Gabby Reese at checkout or just do Sakara.com slash Gabby Reese. I love doing this show because I learn so much from the people I'm talking to. 
But I also learn about a lot of amazing cutting-edge companies like Ritual Vitamins. Because in order for me to share and do advertising, which supports the show, I need to personally be willing to take the product, use the product, give it to my family, or at least understand their business practices and ingredients, if that's what it takes, to share it with you. So let's dive right into what an incredible company Ritual is. It was created by a woman. Her name is Katerina. And she, when she was pregnant, was like clearing the decks, everything out toxic, looking for a great prenatal vitamin. Um, And she couldn't find what she wanted. So she created Ritual. And what's so important, and let's start here, is it's scientifically and nutritionists recommended. So they have a scientist advisory board right off the top. So this isn't just a bunch of people putting together ingredients This is very well thought out. They have a clear visibility of their supply chain, one of a kind. They want you to understand and know where all the ingredients come from. I've been taking the multivitamin. I'm loving it. It has things like, you know, vitamin D3. They're, you know, sort of fill the gaps in my diet. We've all got gaps in our diet. It's just the way that it is. The other thing they do, which is just really fun, is not only do they have vitamins for kids four plus, they have teen vitamins and then they separate it to male and female because listen, we're all different, different stages of life, going through different things. Um, they have an 18 and plus supplements. They have 50 plus. And like my husband and I, for example, he's always has too much iron. I'm always iron deficient. So they're really considering kind of where we are in all these different stages of our life. It's vegan certified, non-GMO, gluten and allergen free. It has no fillers, colorants or weird additives that aren't necessary. Another really cool thing, they have a delayed release. So the no nausea capsule design, especially when it comes to like prenatal and postnatal, that's really, um, really great. Or if people have a sensitive stomach, uh, we talked about being a scientist and nutritionist recommended. This is really, really, this is everything for me. And then a fun little thing that they do is it's oily and dry nutrients together in one capsule. So even taking it's fun because it looks cool and it's different. So when they say that they've really reimagined the multivitamin, I can tell you from top to bottom that they have. So if you want to check it out, go to ritual.com, R-I-T-U-A-L.com. Put in slash Gabby to start your ritual today. They will make this so easy for you. Your multivitamins can be delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. And they're going to give you they're offering all the listeners of the show 10% off during your first three months. So head to ritual.com slash Gabby. That's ritual.com slash Gabby. Now you hear a lot and I'm not sensitive and I, I don't mind, but I'm, you hear all the time, men are better at compartmentalizing than women. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's say I'm going to work and I've gotten in, just got into a hassle with Laird and one of the kids is unhappy and it's like a residue mm-hmm. that's on me. And when I go to work, I, through being in enough stressful situations, maybe competition and other, I've learned to go, well, there's nothing I can really do about that right now. And me carrying that residue with me isn't actually going to change anything. And so I'm going to do my best, my version of compartmentalization. Laird and I talk about this a lot. Like if I said to you, hey, you're going to go hunt, Mm -hmm. then you had to have that deathly singular focus. And so you wonder if through time, that's why men can compartmentalize or it's it's at least a belief that right. they can. Yeah, I, I I don't think it's true. I think it could. I think we just have to look at contexts, right? So so first of all, I would say it feels that way because because I think women are typically more empathetic than men. Feelings leave residue. If we're upset about something and we haven't effectively switched, been able to switch contexts, so this is when we get into task switching, right? Yeah. 
We haven't been able Which to- Which is different than multitasking because that's a myth, basically. That's exactly right. Okay. So task switching is, so so people think, oh, I can multitask. Well, there's been studies that says you can't, right? And even, even that study, I think they found 2% of people who were good at it, but really what they were doing was they were task switching very efficiently. So our ability to hop between- contexts. So just a real quick, mm. you know, so our brain, our brain, basically there's four things, you know, we, there's scripts, there's patterns, there's context, there's, there's context and there's categories. So our brain is constantly taking information and, and writing scripts. This is a microphone. This is a book. That's a yeah. script, right? Pattern is I'm putting some of that stuff together to form a pattern. Well, I see sun, I see blue sky, it's good weather. It's not going to rain. You know, it feels good weather. So that's a pattern. Context is all that stuff, in, you know, kind of clumped into a larger group, right? So we could take the context, context of driving, right? Context of driving has a bunch of different scripts and patterns, uh, acceleration, braking, gear shifting, whatever, you know, scant looking out the window, real important one, a bunch of uh, scripts and patterns inside that context. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you have categories, which would be driving, okay? So, so if I jump into a tractor, that's in my category of driving, and then it's a different context. So you, the way you drive a tractor is different than my car, but uh, but that's how it works, right? So task switching is the ability to move in between those effectively and efficiently. Sometimes, well, so we're task switching all the time. A lot of us do it pretty well, depending on the context. We can all pretty much task switch within our car pretty effectively. At one point, I'm you know braking, then I'm accelerating, and now I'm looking at the one. Now I'm turning my blinker, right? That's switching between categories. It's I'm parking my car in the parking lot. Now I'm getting out into the parking lot, into the and walking in the parking lot of the grocery store. That you've just hopped contexts, and then you walk into the grocery store. Now you're in a different context. So your brain is actually making those leaps. You know, they're just just doing it very rapidly. So our ability to switch in between that is quite natural and and embedded us. Task switching ability as an attribute is when when task switching needs to be more rapid and more diverse. So I'm going from, oh, let's, let's just take um, 2020 as an example and being quarantined. Yeah. I'm going from writing my book to teaching my son advanced algebra and then hopping, and then hopping into making lunch and then hopping into um, walking the dog, right? Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are shifts that, those are task switches that used to be separate, <laughs> but now it's, you know, now, now the brain is like, okay. They're this bleeding kind of. They're tough. Yeah. You know who was really great at it? My wife. For me, I find it interesting because, like, say, on the one hand, the myth would be that men can compartmentalize better, but the other myth would be that women, be it not multitasking, but that do the task switching easier. Yes, yeah. So it's just an interesting juxtaposition of, like, well, you know, do we have maybe some of those attributes to help us navigate the fact that we are more empathetic? Yes. And we can't compartmentalize, but hey, I got to make lunch for the kid and oh, I have a work call and oh, I'm doing laundry, a load of laundry before I go out and go see a friend and then whatever. If you put me into a room and I had to clear a room, let's say in a, in a military environment, I'll just use Laird and I as examples. I feel that in that environment, he would task switch faster than me because mm-hmm. I might be like, oh, that guy's scary. And um, oh, that was close, or they're low, or should I? Do I feel comfortable that I can make that shot, or what have right, you? Right. But then in our everyday life, I can task switch so much quicker and not get overwhelmed by all the million little pieces. Variable you threw in there, which okay. has to be accounted for, and that's fear. All right, fear. Okay. Yeah, fear screws with everything. <laughs> it right. really does, right? Doesn't so, it? Damn yeah, fear. Damn fear. <laughs> um, so you talk about CQC. Of course, you know when if you run into a room and now you're in a quote, life, to de- life and death situation, there's fear you have to push through, which will affect your task switching. So, so fear is a, is a variable that has to be counted in. I would certainly say our, our uh, preclusion in certain attributes will affect our 
will affect other attributes in, depending on context. This gets really complex. So, you know, when I wrote the book, I wanted to make sure I kept it fairly simple and and general, just to just to get the idea out there. Um, there's way, there's a lot of lanes we could go down in this in terms. No, and, of, and I won't yeah. I will I won't be obnoxious, but I was just curious because sometimes there's a small nuance mm -hmm. where I'm like, no, I do that pretty well, but yeah. I don't know about about this, and and then you wonder if. Um, you know, is that tied to attributes? Yeah. Is that tied to skills? Is you know, it's all it's all those it's all those different things in the mental acuity, the compartmentalizing, the task switching. You know, all these things that shows up the least. I would say the mental acuity attributes are very individualized. I'm not sure if you can put mental acuity attributes in the in the context of teams. You'd have to say, okay, each person has their own. Y yeah, you know, when you were testing people, right. was there one that really was like, oh, this is a jewel because we don't find this in everybody. Oh, that's a great question. I don't know about when I was doing it because the environment was so- High badass performance. <laughs> contained, it was contained to one mm, thing. We're talking about CQC. It. We're yep. talking about jumping got out of airplanes, it. right? So I will say this, I always called special operators masters of uncertainty. And the reason is because they had a predominance of a lot of these attributes. A high level of compartmentalization, a high level of situational awareness, compartmentalization, task switching and learnability allows someone to be a, more of a master of uncertainty because, in so, because when you're dropped into an environment, that is completely unknown. And I kind of, I opened the book with some some scenarios, right? Yeah. The question when you read those scenarios is what would I do? Some people read that and they're like, oh my God, I would freak out, right? So yeah, of course. Um, other people are gonna be like, okay, I need to calm down. I need to, that's where, that's where these mental acuity attributes really come into play. And again, even in those situations, fear rolls up, shows up differently in each of those uh, scenarios that I lay out in the book because fear adds into that. You know, my wife and I talk about this all the time. When it comes to fear, I'm just better trained. At, at dealing with fear, I I, I react. In Is a it way the volume of exposure? Like what, I, I would I mean, imagine so. I mean, I certainly I, I I certainly probably had proclivity towards some of it. Right. Um, That's but, how you made uh, yeah. part of it. Major. But again, I, I hyper developed it in my career. You know, you can hyper develop these attributes depending on what you do. Uh, and so I think my career, war, all that stuff, hyper developed this stuff to the degree. But even even seal training, it's funny. Where I live in my neighborhood, I have four. I have three other seals. I have one across the street. I have. One down to the left, I have one down to the right. Be a fun place to go to take, <laughs> yeah. do a robbery or That's something. That's right, yeah. So I remember my wife someone saying, she's like, I'm so glad these guys are in the neighborhood. And I said, why? And she said, because if anything happened, I could go to them and they'd act like you act. And I was like, well, tell me more. What does that mean? She said, she said if, if, if things were going wrong or bad, I know that they'd stop, they'd calm down, and they'd work the problem. Right. And this is exactly what you do as a special operator. And I say SEALs. I mean, this is Green Berets. This is Rangers. This is all these guys. Marines, too. Or Marine Recon. Or the ability to, to, in that environment, start working the problem. Now, that takes an enormous amount of courage. And the ability to be courageous is also an attribute, right? So, and, and, and that's something that we, some of us have more of, some of us less. A lot of us practice it, you know? Okay. How would you practice? Would Okay. Let's use an everyday scenario. I, I, I talk about this a lot. Like when I see people, I will always say hello first or good afternoon or ask them how their day is first. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of people communicate and say, this makes me really uncomfortable. Really? Oh, wow. Not to be the person on the other end, but to do that. Oh, okay. okay to yeah, practice. Yeah, yeah. And so how I would- say, that sound, That's delightful. <laughs> well, it just makes my life better. That's it's right. all about me. I mean, everyone's, but it, just, it whatever, it's just, I feel like it's just a better way to go through yeah, life. And you yeah. feel like people do want to connect. They just sometimes don't know how. But how would somebody, it, it, is it, okay, I'm recognizing a, a situation that's not, not necessarily, you know, going to be destructive, mm -hmm. but it does make us uncomfortable is the in practicing that attribute is it simply taking a step 
towards it? Is it yes. leaning into okay. that? So let's. So we have to break down fear. So so fear, and this is another stuff that Huberman and I have played with, and and he's seen in his lab, and so we were able to really put verbiage around it. Fear um, is the combination of uncertainty and anxiety. Um, so uncertainty plus anxiety create fear. Uh, because if you have one and not the other, you're not necessarily afraid, right? So I can, you know, you can be anxious but not uncertain. That's I'm nervous for the pool workout, right? But I know it's going to be okay, right? Yeah. So there's no fear. You can be uncertain but not anxious, and that's every kid on Christmas Eve, you know. So 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 when you start to combine the two, fear uh, starts to show up, and fear, of course, is a is a response. It's a physiological response, an autonomic response. And our bodies typically give us one of three choices, and that is fight. We've all heard this, right? Fight. Right flight or freeze, right? In Andrew's work in the lab, and they've seen this, so they've they've identified neural circuits that are switches for each choice. So it's not even, they're not even combined in one. Each choice is a certain switch. So if you choose to fight, and so fight really is, I'm stepping into- I'm gonna move I'm towards it. I'm moving towards it, right? That's yeah. fight. If you choose that, you flip a switch, right? If you choose to retreat, you When flip you say a flip a switch, do you then have a completely different physiological yes. and hormonal response? Yes. Yeah, and the key is the, mm. the, 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 the physiological response you get when you step in. When you step in, you get a hit of dopamine. Dopamine, the most, one of those powerful chemicals in the world, a neurotransmitter, it's immediate pleasure, right? It, sh- it tells us this is good, you know? So, so again, this is by evolutionary design. To survive, we needed to be able to conquer our fear and move forward. We needed to find new food, new, new shelter, right? And, and the system was designed not so much that once we get there, we get rewarded. So this is a mistake most people make. They think dopamine is once we finish. No, dopamine is every step you take forward, you get one. So, so, so courage, and so by the way, bravery, courage yeah. cannot happen in the absence of fear. Right? You need fear to be to be courageous because if you don't have fear, you're not getting that switch flipped and you're not getting that dopamine. So you can practice this. There's a caveat <laughs> though because you know and I talk about I don't like heights. I never liked heights. So so skydiving was always rough for me. Um, I had to move through it. But but one of the things that we have at every seal base is uh, opt- obstacle course and um, and part of the part of every obstacle course they have like 65 foot cargo net roughly. And it was really simple, climb up one side, kick over, climb down the other. I hated it because it was just, it was tall and at, at the top it's- It's worse than skydiving, by the way. High yes. dives and bungee it, jumps yes. is way worse than skydiving. Because you can see, because you, you have that ground brush right away. Your reference is- yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because once you're up at 12,000 feet or, or more- Big and Jumping fast. into the air. Yeah. yeah. I would every day plan my run to go by the, by the cargo net and I'd basically climb up that thing and I'd sit at the top. Because, and I just, I'd breathe in the fear. <laughs> I'd feel the unsteadiness and all that stuff. And I'd get the, and then I'd climb down. I'd get that dopamine hit. I'd feel great. And I did that over and over. But after maybe a week, I stopped feeling great. It stopped, I stopped being afraid. So, so practicing courage takes not only doing the things that cause you anxiety and uncertainty, right? But it's, it means once you've done it a few times, you're going to have to switch because you, 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 you move into stress inoculation. So, so you go from, uncertainty to now I've developed the, 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 the keys to make me competent in this specific thing. So yeah. a great example, we go skydiving and we do, we do these skydiving trips and we do like 50 or 80 jumps in five days. Right? Oh. Um, and, but I tell you what, after day one, we did like 10 jumps, I'd be fine. I was just like, okay, this is great. My fear, I didn't have fear anymore because I was just, I'd inoculated myself to that, right? So, so we can practice cars. Now it does not have to be death defying. It just has to be something that makes us uncomfortable. uncomfortable. And, 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 and anxiousness is good. If we start to get that response, we're good. we have to understand that anxiety is internal, right? That's, that's where we feel anxiety. Uncertainty is external. 
right? So there's different tools you can use for each one. Uh, the the physiological responses that you can use for anxiety are, you know, we talk. You have it. You know, breathing is a great one. Vision. There's some vision tools to get yourself shifted from sympathetic to parasympathetic. Bring yourself down off of that autonomic response to deal with the external, the uncertainty. It's about okay, what can and this is now? This is a mental drill where you say, okay, what can I control? You know, because uncertainty is all about lack of control. You don't there. You don't understand specific cues about your environment. You don't understand how long it's going to last. So we, we've broken it down to three things, and this is how the brain works. Uh, duration, how long is this going to last? Pathway, how am I, what's my pathway out of this uh, or through it? And then outcome, what's at the end? If we're absent any one or more of those things, stress starts to show up. You know, Uncertainty yeah. starts to show up and build. The way to begin to inoculate or at least deal with that is to start building certainty into as many of those things as you can. And so I, the example I would give is when I was at SEAL training, we'd be carrying these these 300-pound boats in our heads for hours, right? Especially in Hell Week. And just like, oh my God, I don't know. I don't know how long this is going to go on for. I don't know what the pathway out is, you know? Uh, and I don't know what when it's going to, I don't know the outcome, what's going to happen after this, right? So so I remember beginning to chunk. This is when I talk about chunking, chunk the environment. Okay, I'm just going to focus at the end of the, to the end of this berm. And what, I, what did I do right there? I immediately took over duration from now until I get to the end of the berm, pathway from here to end of berm, outcome, end of berm, right? As soon as I get there, I've just given myself a dopamine reward because I've, I've accomplished a goal and I can do it again. You know, So we can take charge of uncertainty just by the simple question, what can I control right now? However, we have to be in a logical place. We have to be off of the autonomic response enough so that we can have logical thought and emotion doesn't help. Can we slide this notion because a lot of people listening are in you know, their parents or in family, and, and you have two sons. Maybe you could just share how this shows up because I, I'm always really fascinated in these high performance arenas and, and even in work environments. But what where I really get intrigued is how we can take some of these skills and and bring them over to a place that we're really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Because you're you're vulnerable in a way to your family and to your sons as a father. You know, 13 deployments or not that maybe you just so experience so differently. Because in a way it's weird, right? You don't have the urgency of maybe some of the environments that you were in in the military. And we were talking about it earlier and the arc on some of it is so much longer mm-hmm. and unknown because you're not, you know, we're not really controlling our children. So maybe you have a kid who they're making a certain choice or they've gone through something or you feel you see them heading in a path you know what's some of the what's some of the attributes that you draw upon that you either you're easy for you or not to kind of help you say I'm gonna I'm gonna manage this so I can execute um, the right response as a parent. Yeah, because yeah. people don't realize like there is a lot of you can put more thought into it. Doesn't mean it's gonna land right. Doesn't mean it's gonna yeah. be the right technique or the right. You may not drop down the right sort of words at that time. Right. right. But I feel like sometimes when we can stop, yeah. there's that. That opportunity. The number one thing, especially in parenting, is empathy. And thank God for my wife because she is so empathetic and she actually showed me uh, how to be more empathetic. I had to direct myself to do it, but she uh, she showed me more. She showed me the power of empathy. And, and I think our kids, you know, with our teens, the first, as soon as I began to start to imagine, reimagine myself at that age, I started to say, oh, okay, wait a second, right? Because we have all the lessons. We have all the bumps. We've, we've taken all the falls. Right, so so we're at a we're at a quote mastery level, and they are not, and so so empathy is number one, and but then courage because we you know oftentimes we think we want to protect our kids, you know we want them to feel great, and we want nothing to happen to them, 
But the fact is, we we are who we are because things happen to us. You know, you can't teach a kid to ride a bike without him falling down a bunch of times, right? They are going to get hurt. And so as long as you're setting the boundaries in a way that makes sure that they don't get hurt too badly, having the courage to let them take their lumps and make their mistakes. So I think courage, I think empathy, I think it's then a matter of behaving in a way that they can see and model. Because I think you'll agree with this, our kids don't do what we tell them to do. They yeah. do what we do, right? So they don't listen to us, they, they, they watch us. So our example as parents is much more in our behavior than it is in our, in our words, because our kids are saying, are seeing that and, and watching and emulating. So the leadership attributes come into effect here: empathy, selflessness. You know, uh, which which dials it kind of it kind of dials directly off of empathy. For an act to be selfless, there has to be some risk or cost to the person who's who's conducting that act. Mm-hmm. Is different than just generosity or altruism. It's a cost to oneself. It's putting oneself at risk to do that. So do that as we do that as parents all the time. Sometimes we do it and they don't see it. In fact, most of the time we do it and they don't see it. Um, but sometimes they can see it. You know, so so my wife and I are very cognizant of this when we behave with each other. You know, I think this is this is, you know, our kids can learn about healthy relationships by watching a healthy relationship, you know, and part of that is being very aware of your actions. Now, this doesn't mean not fighting or being all 50 style, you know, nothing's wrong. In fact, my, when my wife and I fight, try to, especially if the kids see it, yeah. we also try to see to allow them to, to understand and see the resolution and see how, oh yeah, we did that, but then we talked about it and now we're okay. Yeah, you know? And you can do that fairly. You can. You know, and, and even the notion of sometimes we don't, we're not always going to see perfectly eye to eye, but we yes. can respect and love each other. That's exactly right. And do it fairly. Yeah. When you talk about leadership and you talk about these traits, and I love that you say like a leader can't say they're a leader. So you could say, hey, I'm in charge of this group or I'm in charge of this office. The only people that can say you're the leader are the people who are supposedly following That's you. That's right, yeah. And when you say the selflessness is, for example, do you think a great leader would basically, you know, put together an environment for people to thrive and be their best and stand back and not, it's not about them? I worked for a, a leadership uh, institute when I first got out of the Navy. And we we went around the world and country and we'd ask, we'd usually start our, we do two-day courses or even sometimes even talks where we start the talk by saying, okay, we're asking you this question, what do great leaders do? And then we just have people throw out words, you know, and, and what's interesting is the list was always the same. And it was things like empathy. Even culture, even, even cross-culture, you know. Um, it was things like empathy, listened, allowed me to take risks, there when I needed them, had my back. I think it's intuitive on what we think great leaders are. If I were to ask your audience to right now, think about someone in their lives who they think is a great leader. As they think about that person, they're gonna understand the qualities as to why that person's a great leader. And it's all these qualities. It's it's empathy, it's accountability, it's it's decisiveness, it's, you know, authenticity. Can you also differentiate between, because I, I thought this was important, decision-making and decisiveness? Probably speaks a little bit more towards a businessy or, yes. or, or, yeah. or, um, or even military. Not technique. a lot of us are going to get into the Navy SEALs, okay? Yeah, that's okay. Well, everybody has a chance, you know. <laughs> you never know. Um, but yeah, so decisiveness is the ability to quickly and effectively make decisions. And the idea is, is the speed with which you do it because, because you can be a great decision maker, but if you're someone who typically protracts that process, we know how annoying that can be. We know we've had leaders who it takes them forever to make a decision. They make great decisions, but it takes them forever, right? So, so part of our desire for leaders is that they are decisive. Now, it comes with a caveat. Again, all of this comes with caveats, right? Sure. Is that you're also accountable, right? Decisiveness and accountability go hand in hand. If you are decisive but not accountable, it erodes 
trust, right? Um, and so, so you have to be decisive. Now, part of being decisive means that while decisions may be final, they are not permanent because you also, you, so you make a decision, okay, that's fine, we're moving out, right? Yeah. But it's not permanent. If, if, we, if, if that decision turns out it was the wrong one or we need to shift and tweak, now we're adaptable, we, the, the leader says, oh, okay, let's just adapt. You know, uh, so, so they're final but not permanent. And then of course, you're accountable for them. You say, hey, at the, I made this decision, I'm accountable, yeah. this is me. You know, so both of those I think are very important because if you have neither, now if you have one, if you have accountability, you're gonna, mm. you know, you're, you're, you're better off with just accountability. <laughs> you can get away with not being as decisive. I think accountability and authenticity are actually the two most important attributes for leadership because that builds trust and trust is key in that environment. And that almost goes back to what we were just saying about parenting where you're kind of modeling. Yes. And you're saying, hey, I'm willing to stand up and say I blew it. Yes. When yes. it didn't work out. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge deal. It is. And so I would, I would ask how many of us parents have ever apologized to our kids? <laughs> You know, I have. I, I say have it. Too. I say yeah. it very quietly. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's wrong. But you know, it's funny. I, I started that, and of course, my wife helped me with that because it was hard for me. But when I started, when I started doing that, and I started doing it as frequently as it was required. You know, yeah. Talking about my 15 year old, he'll go off and he'll do something, and he'll be just kind of a 15 year old. About yeah. It, right. Sure. And sure isn't sure enough. Give it an hour or so. Give it two hours, and he comes back and says, "Dad, I'm sorry." You know, and I almost cry <laughs> because because I'm I'm saying, oh my gosh, this is exactly you almost you almost want to forgive everything before that. You have to remember, depending on what he did, right? You know, yeah. bad language is forgivable. Yeah. Sometimes other things aren't, but but you're just so proud because that that mental process is now is now becoming ingrained in their in behavior and their behavior, and that's yeah. that's accountability. That's that's it personified. Well, and you're creating a safe environment. I think that's really important, mm -hmm. especially if you're in a any kind of relationship that you create a safe space for somebody to do that. I used to tell my girls, the fact that you could identify and take ownership is actually more valuable to me that you, than you never blew it. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah, because we're I, all going to blow it, you know, we're yeah. all going to blow yeah. it. But if you can go, Hey, I blew it. I'm sorry. It's like, Oh, that's, that's amazing. That's exactly, you know? totally. That's when you're like, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. And then of course you, you smack yourself because humility is part of parenting too. You say, okay, don't get over your skis on this one. You're going to screw up tomorrow probably. But uh, you know, yeah. as, as a parent, you know, day, so day by day, yeah. Give yourself a quick pat on the back and then move on. <laughs> you talk about, you know, discipline being an attribute, but self-discipline being a skill. Yes. This this really was powerful for me because I think, again, a lot of us identify like, oh, I have this attribute. This kind of comes naturally. I don't. And, and I really appreciate the fact that this idea of like, hey, we can work on things. Mm -hmm. But you, you're very clear that discipline is is different yeah. than self-discipline. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is where I had to do some self-reflection. Just take it down to to the attributes versus skills analogy, right? Discipline is goal-directed behavior. Um, we can see that in small children. I don't think we see self-discipline in small children. You just don't, right? So it's something you can learn. I can teach myself to be self-disciplined. But really the the introspection was with me. You know, I have since high school, you know written down, I'm big on writing down goals and visualizing all that stuff. I've written down and pursued audacious goals. And I've been pretty successful in most of them. So I am pretty disciplined overall. I have almost zero self-discipline. I'm really bad. It's hard for me to be self-disciplined. And so I said to myself, how does that work? Hmm. Yeah. How does that work? How, do, how does someone like me who has such trouble with self-discipline still do this. And so it's when, that's when I began to have to separate between the kind of the, the childhood of, you know, being able to see it in children and seeing, see it in me. We know, we all know people who are extraordinarily, they, they crush their goals. But when you look at their, 
their ability to kind of manage themselves, <laughs> you know, oh, it's, yeah. they're not too good. You know, they're, they're, they're in some cases messes, right? We've also seen people who are extraordinarily self-disciplined. You know, they have, they eat the right thing every day. They work out every day. They're phenomenally fit, but they, they, they can't get, they can't get it going in life. They can't, they can't even start or cross the finish line or whatever. So we've seen the, the polarities of both. Obviously, if you have both, if you're self, if you're, if you have high self-discipline and you have high discipline, you're a rocket ship, you know. But I think I wanted to, well, I needed to separate it, but I also wanted to describe it because I wanted to make sure people who feel like it's really tough to not have that beer or really tough to do that workout every morning, whatever it might be, or really tough to just eat the right thing, they may actually be very high on the discipline scale. You know, they may be great at crushing their goals. And oftentimes it means that they're able to figure out a way around their there's there the lack of self-discipline for me it's kind of like i i hack it right so i my wife and i we, we joke all the time because we we like having beer in the evenings right so yeah. and so oftentimes like okay we gotta stop drinking especially in the turn of the pandemic okay we have to stop this and so we'll we'll say let's get rid of the beer you know because we're, we we joke we're, we're horrible accountability partners for each other right we just like because we, we get rid of it's like we're gonna stop drinking on monday right yes. okay and then monday yeah, comes around want, and i'm like yeah. i'm like i feel like a beer my wife's like get me some when you go <laughs> <laughs> and then we, yeah, so so we realize, okay, let's get rid of the beer, get it out of the house. So yeah. so can I create conditions around to support to support my lack of self discipline? Yeah. Uh, but again, I think self knowledge is the key to this because if you understand that about it, if you stop beating yourself up and say, yeah, I have none. You know, self discipline, I have none. So let me start setting conditions. So so if you're if you want to, um, for example, uh, go on a diet or, or eat a certain way, you know, that's when when break, you know, uh, or off days work great for someone who's not self-disciplined because that person can then chunk that that process into, okay, all I have to do is get Monday through Saturday and then Sunday I can do whatever I want, right? I mean, but you know, I mean, there are, there are very disciplined people who like, they don't need off days. They're just, they're going to be fine, you know? So, yeah. so that's why I wanted to separate it because I think it's important for optimal performance. Optimal performance, in my mind, requires discipline, not necessarily self-discipline, right? So it requires your ability to understand a goal long-term, understand the the pathway and the wickets required to get there and then be disciplined in your process right and that's not getting like we talked about before it's not it's it's the ability to not get seduced by the highs or crushed by the lows it's the ability to keep moving and then if you can add self-discipline to that that's awesome by the way yeah. right just some bumpers so like you said so in your regular life mm -hmm. you're just not a complete hot mess because it's, right. it's yes. great, you know, the thing is, I know a lot of people who can accomplish a, a ton of things, but then it's like, oh, but so many of the other parts are falling off. Yeah. yeah. So it's like just trying to keep that scale a little bit tipped. Yeah. We don't have to go down the hole in all of all of them, but you talk about all so many other attributes like curiosity and cunning and open-mindedness mm -hmm. and then narcissism. Narcissist. And, and I think, you know, obviously that has a negative connotation, but not always necessarily. I mean, you know, you don't want to be like defined as a narcissism, but you're saying, hey, even these attributes play an important part on a team for certain things. Humor. I yes. loved, I love yeah. that. The, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the lever to give everyone permission to laugh, yeah. the relief, but maybe you could just sort of brush on like, well, how would narcissism help a team? Grit category, the mental acuity category, the drive category, I would, I would qualify as individual attributes like and right. those are the ones that cause us as as human beings to move forward or perform optimally i'm not sure if narcissism as an attribute has a place on a team because humility is really primary necessary attributes on a team what narcissism does for all of us is it gets us to places that we may not have gone to because we all every one of us has this desire to stand out 
be recognized and feel special. And the reason why we have that desire is because it's a biological one, right? When we are infants being paid attention to by our parents, we are getting hits of uh, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Dopamine, mm -hmm. again, pleasure, right? So it feels good. Serotonin is this, this chemical that makes us feel safe. And 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 it has to do with like uh, a little bit to do with like um, safety in terms of I'm, I'm, I'm safe because this person that I'm looking at will protect me. And it has to do with the protector, the alpha, feeling that. So you get both of them. And then oxytocin, which is the love hormone, right? Mm -hmm. So so you're getting that bonding going on. That feels good and it feels good no matter what. And so and so I always I always joke, if you ask any Navy SEAL why he became a SEAL and that guy says patriotism, he's lying to you. Right. No, he's not lying to you. He's not giving you the, he's not telling you the full truth. Because all of us are patriots. He became a SEAL for the same reason I became a SEAL, for the same reason every guy becomes a SEAL. We wanted to be badasses, yeah. right? We wanted to see if we could do something that very few people could do, right? That's narcissism talking. But it's a healthy dose of narcissism because it's driving us to do something. It's driving us to want to stand out, be special. And so and so I, th I, I think there's a certainly, you know, the DSM-5, which is the psychology Bible, right, that right. outlines the, the nine qualifiers for narcissistic personality disorder. I think if you have five or more, yeah, uh, you're, Watch you're out. yeah, you're you're, but it's like a, it's low, it's low, it's like one percent of right. the population. But you, read but there's those, a lot of people out there who are like, I've dated that person. Or, but yeah. you also read those things, and you're like, wait, actually, uh, so I, I have a little bit of that, right? <laughs> you know, and so and so we all have it, and I think mm -hmm. I think part of our part of the problem or part of our roadblock to our potential is not recognizing our humanness and being okay with it, you know, and so and so if we can say, hey, this is who I am, this is how I show up, how do I optimize that? You know, and optimizing narcissism is very powerful. So we can get, it can help us get to where we want to go. And then once we're on a team, now we're shifted into, into team mode, right? right? Which humility becomes a huge factor. And then humor. Humor is my favorite. So. Yeah, you, you say in, in some ways, like the class clown gives everybody permission to kind of almost offload tension and stress or, yeah. you know, whether it's in literally in the class. I mean, obviously humor is a protective mechanism to help us you know, put things that sometimes are too difficult to deal with in that moment in a place that we can, yeah. but that how this class clown, there's so much value in that as well. Again, I love the neurology and, you know, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but I, I talked to neuroscientists, right? <laughs> so um, yeah. when we laugh, it's an involuntary res response. We can't help it, right? So it happens whether we like, it's like sneezing, you know, as soon as we laugh, three chemicals are produced, right? The first is dopamine, our favorite, right? Yeah. The next is endorphins, right? Endorphins, as you know, mask pain, you know? And this, so it's interesting. And I think it was in the late 60s, early 70s, doctors were studying opiates, you know, you know, illegal drugs and things like that. And as they studied the brain and then the opiates effect, they realized that the brain had opiate receptors. There were opiate receptors built into the brain. And so they said, well, why the heck are... Do our brains have opiate receptors? Well, it's because we make our own opiates enter endorphins. Endorphins are powerful opiates that, that mask physical pain. Again, by design, we're endurance creatures. So we needed to be able to go for days on the hunt to find food. As we, as we move through those endurance events, endorphins get produced and we feel good. You know, that's why this is a runner's high. I mean, all, anybody, any of us who work out a lot know this, right? So endorphins is the other one. And then oxytocin, it's a bonding chemical. Right. So what happens is when we laugh, it, it, we, get, we get a powerful burst of all three and it helps us get through. So the story I have around that is from SEAL training. So SEAL training, you do something called surf torture. And as you know, it's Southern California and water in Southern California is not as warm as people think. You know, it's no. in the sixties usually. We were in November, so it's in the fifties. So surf torture, just for your audience, you, you lock arms with your classmates on the beach. You walk to, out to about ankle deep water in the, in the waves and then you lay back 
and then the waves just crash over you and then they recede and they crash over you and then they recede. It's the coldest thing you'll ever do. You know, I mean, it really is cold. And a lot of guys quit during it. They have us in there for what seems like hours. Um, they actually have stopwatches because they want to make sure we don't hype out. But it was our hell week and we were in, it was, I don't know what time, middle of the night. We we're in surf torture. We we're just getting surf tortured. And as usual, the instructors want to screw with you. So instructor drove a van uh, onto the beach there and he gets out and he has a megaphone. He's like, and he's like, um, hey, anybody who quits right now, I have hot chocolate and blankets and donuts in the van. If you quit right now, you get some hot chocolate, donuts, and a blanket. All you have to do is quit. And I remember the guy next to me, who's still a friend, yelling out at that point. He was like, hey, do you have chocolate glazed donuts? Because if you don't have any chocolate glazed, I'm not quitting, right? And I remember bursting out laughing, and he was laughing, right? And I knew in that moment he would make it, and I would make it, right? I looked to my left, though, and the guy to my left, he was he, he, he was wasn't stoic, laughing. right? He wasn't laughing. He was he was lost. <laughs> he in was his, deep in his suffering. He was lost in his suffering. And I remember saying, "This guy's not going to make it." And sure enough, within five minutes, he was ringing that bell. Yeah. Um, I heard later they didn't have chocolate glaze, by the way. But um, <laughs> uh, but so what? So break that down. What happened during that moment? Right? That laugh. That that single laugh released in me dopamine. Keep going. This is good. Right? Uh, endorphins masked my pain. Was, I don't feel that bad right now. Right? And then oxytocin. This guy. I'm with this guy. Right? I'm sticking with him. Right? powerful. So, so laughing actually can be a courage hack because it gives us dopamine. It's why when we're, when we're actually approaching something that we fear, oh, yeah. if someone makes us laugh, we feel better, right? What is it doing? It's giving us dopamine. Okay, keep going. You're okay. No high-performing team that I've ever come across does not have at least one class clown that makes us all laugh. Now, the humor as, a, humor as an attribute doesn't necessarily mean that you're funny. You don't have to be the funny one. It just means you have the ability to laugh when things are, are down. Being funny helps if you, if you can contribute to that class yeah. clownery. It helps. Yeah. So there's so much in here for anyone who's not only looking to learn for themselves, but if you are, let's say, in charge of a group or part of a group. And I really appreciate where you talk about high performance, It's that it's not walled off, you know, that it's not sort of these pieces. Because I think people think, oh, I can just put all these pieces together and then we'll have this high performance. Peak performance is an apex from which we can only come down. You know, peak performance has to be prepared for planned for, scheduled. You have to design, it has to be, it has to be conditioned, right? And so the, the professional football player, for example, spends his entire week- Ready for Sunday. Re- yeah, pr- training and getting ready to peak for three hours on Sunday, right? So it's not really practical in life. Great when you can do it, by the way. So there's nothing wrong with it, but great. No, but it uh, has a very specific place. It has a very, and time, you know, and condition, you know? Yeah. And so uh, so what we were talking mm-hmm. about is optimal performance. Optimal performance is, can I do the, how can I do the very best I can in the moment, whatever that best looks like, okay? And this is where we began to start thinking about, well, certainly SEAL training, but take it out of SEALs for a second. You know, people who are sick, like cancer patients, you know, and people who are really struggling, you know, uh, you know, you talk to, uh, and I talked to, I've talked about Sandy in the book. Sandy, you know, went through can- uh, cancer treatment. And, you know, there's- I love the no- different color wigs. Yeah, she, she's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but listen, she said, you know, when I was going through my chemo, right, I was- I was just I was just thinking about getting through that day. You know, mm-hmm. that's 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 chunking it down into just step by step. So the the idea is optimal performance can look like peak. It can look like flow states and all that stuff. Um, sometimes though, it's just taking step by step, moment by moment. You know, when I was shivering in the surf zone, there was nothing peak about my performance. When Sandy was going through chemo, there was nothing peak about her performance. Um, endurance athletes see this all the time. You can ask any triathlete or ultra marathoner, hey. Were you at peak the whole time? They're like, no. <laughs> you know, right. they are literally just they're they're modulating themselves. They're doing the best. Sometimes peak is like, I'm gonna sprint this one. That's life. In life, it's almost can you just wake up each day and keep showing up and be your best? Mm-hmm. And sometimes sometimes your best is like 
you're here, you're not losing your mind, you're performing pretty well. And I think that this is really important because it's, it is that sort of long game. It is. Yeah. You know, optimal performance, I think, creates an, an environment. It isn't like, oh, I showed up really well for five years. It's how do I, and also keep re- readjusting. Yes. You yeah. know, and, and sort of taking that long, hard look at ourselves and saying, okay, what do I need to practice? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All of us who are listening to this right now performed optimally through 2020. And we should pat ourselves on the back for it too, because we all know, we all can look back and was like, there were times I was just going day by day. I just didn't, I had to figure it out, you know, and, and, and it was almost in, in hourly increments where, you know, and you had to kind of say, okay, what's working now? What's working every day? You had to ask yourself, ask yourself, what's, what's going to work today? What's going to work in this moment? Sometimes you had weeks where like, Hey, that week was great. You know? So your aperture inside of which you could perform well or peak, you know, was, was longer. Other days it was like, oh my God, this sucks. Yeah. Maybe I can just get through dinner. There were days I'm like, is it too early to go to bed? It's like four o'clock. Yeah. Can I, can I get to tomorrow? Because if I get to tomorrow, then the next day's closer, you know. Yeah, my wife and I really, we started taking walks around our neighborhood because we have a German shepherd and, yeah. and she needed to be exercised. And we, we it was funny because we started with um, a walk in the morning and then yeah. it turned into like two walks. And then sometimes we yeah. take three walks because it's like, that was our, that was, it was okay today. It's a three walker. We need yeah. to get out. We need to just, you know, lose ourselves, talk, you know, debrief, you know. And sometimes I think that's an important thing too, is knowing it's like, I'm I'm going to actually take a little space. Yes. You know, to be optimal, I will actually back away. Yes. And reinsert myself more consciously yeah. than just, you know, continuing in the spin cycle. What attributes did you, I know you talked about your learnability and things. After coming out of the SEALs, you know, what do you feel like maybe you didn't go in with in some of the attributes that you really worked on that you came out? Empathy was that I didn't have a lot of, right? So, yeah, so I, I think, and again, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't too low on it, but as right. I came out of the military, I realized empathy was something that I needed to work on more because again, the SEAL teams, one of the beauties of it for, for guys in there, myself included, it's hegemonic in terms of the way we all think, you know, certainly not hegemonic in terms of race, color, creed, and religion. You can count on the way everybody's going to think and perform pretty much because we all have kind of the same attributes. It's like, okay, no matter who you're talking to, things are going to happen, you know, show up. And I always joke because like time, like punctuality is a, is a pet peeve of mine, you know? Mm-hmm. And I realized, and I had to be, coming out of the Navy, I had to be empathetic to the fact that the, that regular, the regular world does not think of time the way I think of time, you know? And so I joke with Andrew because he's professor. So, and we, we separate it, right? So there's military time and then there's SEAL time and then there's professor time, right? Military yeah. time is if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. That's military time. Yeah, sure. Professor time is anything between 15 and 20 minutes after start time, you're good. Yeah. Right? And then there's SEAL time. SEAL time, and I'll, the only example I'll give you is our helicopters. We, we flew with the uh, 160th guys, just phenomenal dudes. And, they, and we used to plan with them. We used to plan, okay, here's pickup time. Here's, you know, whatever. And they would tell us, hey, we are going to be there plus or minus 30 seconds. That was, their, that was their time scale, plus or minus 30 seconds. So I come from a world where it's plus or minus 30 seconds. I literally like, you know, I'm driving here today and, you know, Rob say, hey, we're going to be there by nine. I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, okay, what's the clock? And I, and I got caught up on the Pacific Coast Highway. There's some construction and my, my ETA started shifting to like 902, 903. I was like, okay, this is, I started, and I was, I had to tell myself, wait a second, it's not that, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. So, so being empathetic of that, I think was a huge one. I think empathy was probably the biggest one. The reason is because even in this, in the military, as you, 
as you uh, rank up, you become in charge of, as you become a leader, well, so as you become more in charge of more in charge people, of things, yeah. and if you have the desire to be a leader, so you behave in a way that people choose that you are a leader, you are forced to exercise some of those other attributes. As a dad, is open-mindedness, any of those attributes that really you, you've noticed like, wow, I've, I've done some work on that. Yes, open-mindedness is certainly one. Patience is, you know, so I talk is about- Is that an attribute? Oh, it well, is. So, yeah, so I talk, yeah, so I talk about I talk about the others in the book. I talk about patience, fear of rejection, and competitiveness, but I don't place them in the categories of the other attributes because if you look at the other, the other attributes, for the most part, more is better for optimal performance. Obviously, narcissism and cunning, we want right. to be able to evenly dial on that one. When I started looking at patience, competitiveness, and fear of rejection, though, I really, what I realized is, wait a second, the- the corollary to that, to each of these, is not necessarily bad. In other words, I'm patient, right? But there are very highly performing, successful, impatient people. Same thing with competitiveness. We, we all kind of get this idea that, you know, competitiveness is a hugely uh, valuable trait to, to succeed, right? I, and I don't disagree. What I disagree with is the implied corollary is that non-competitiveness is bad, right? Um, I am not competitive at all. I never have been. And what, that, what I've realized that's allowed me to do probably one of the reasons why I became a SEAL, was I always looked for what other people were doing. And I said, I want to go the other direction. I have no, I have no interest in competing in that. I want to try something else. You know? yeah. So it's always, it's always forced me to forge new pathways. Uh, and then I would say the same thing about fear of rejection versus insouciance to what other people think, right? Um, fear of rejection can be a very powerful motivator. I'm, I'm going to do this because I don't want to look bad, right? Mm-hmm. This is why I kept on jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> you know, This is why guys, team guys, who don't like the water continue to scuba dive. Because you're, because all of us quite uh, attached to whether or not we're going to look bad in front of our peers, really powerful. Obviously, there there are bad things that can happen in terms of peer pressure and things like that. But powerful if if it's in the context of a team and healthy. But then there's people who don't don't give a crap what people yeah. think. You know, my wife is like this. My my youngest son is like this, and that's where the iconoclasts come from. Oh, right? it's amazing. And it's amazing. And they're and they're oh by the way, their infe- their energy is infectious. Right. So my my wife is. She has an infectious energy. She really does. And so people are just like, oh my God, she's just lovely to be around. You know, It's because she's her own person. She just does her thing. Yeah. My 13-year-old is the same way. He goes to school. We just So he's in middle school. Sixth grade was last year. Uh, my wife was at one of the meetings with, the, with his teachers. And one of the teachers pipes up and he says, I love Josh. He just, he's unabashed, right? He said, we were doing an introduction exercise. This is a bunch of sixth graders. When you're supposed to really start caring. Yeah, yeah. And the question was, hey, what are, the th- what are some of the things that you like to do as, as hobbies? There was silence because kids are kind of looking around. My son, he, he raises up, he's like, you know what? I really love my um, Star Wars stuff and I love building with Legos. And so I love doing my Star Wars and I love building with Legos and I play with lightsabers with my brother. Immediately people were like, and then suddenly kids are like, yeah, suddenly other kids are like, I love my teddy bears. I love this, mm. you know? And so this is the power of not caring what people think. It's you very know? courageous. Yes. There's, there, it's feel. almost built in. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this book will be available. You're reading it. Yes. So I'm reading it. There's an audible book, mm-hmm. uh, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. I actually really also appreciate the, the, the book itself so that you can take notes, write things down, see it, t- look it over again. But in writing this, and I understand your own curiosity about optimal performance and either, you know, suboptimal uh, conditions or just, you know, kind of this is how really life is. What are you hoping when you, when you put this out? You know, how are you hoping people will use this? Obviously, it will be personal, but how are you hoping? Well, I am hoping that people can gain some insight into their own behavior, 
uh, so they can stop judging it and they can start capitalizing. You know, just because you have, just because it's harder for you to adapt to things doesn't mean you can't hyperperform. You know, you can work on your adaptability if you want to, if you feel it's necessary, um, but you can also capitalize on some of the other attributes. And so I think that knowledge, that self, self-introspection, I think is one of the keys to high-performing people. I think every high performer I've ever met is diligent about that. You know, what, can I can I study my own engine before I start slapping stuff on it and make it faster and, and stronger? And that's key because if you don't understand that, then you're going to slap stuff on the engine and it's going to it's going to blow a gasket, right? So you need to, we need to understand our own engine. So I'm I'm hoping people can read it. Um, once they read it, they can go to the website and on the website, theattributes.com, they can take an assessment tool um, for grit, mental acuity, and drive, and they can see how they stack up on each of the attributes as compared to, uh, right now it's a group of a thousand. As mm-hmm. we as we get more data, we'll increase that group. But so where do you stack up on, you know, on situational awareness compared to a thousand people who've taken this thing? Um, now that is only a snapshot, right? So the, the, the idea is look at that, but then start applying that information to your own life and say, okay, is that actually, if I come up low on situational awareness, is that actually accurate? And start, the only way you can do that is subjectively. Think about situations where, you where situational awareness was required and you were coming up short. If you have your headphones on when you're walking around the city, you're probably not high on situational awareness because you don't really care. Vigilance is not your thing. Again, nothing wrong with that. Just right. know. Just know. Um, so take the assessment, figure out where you are, and then you can start figuring out. I'm going to throw some stuff on there that you can uh, you can look at to help develop the attributes that you may want to develop. So so use that, and then from a team perspective, as you understand that, take a look at your team. And I describe in the book a way you can kind of start making those lists for your team and start figuring out what attributes that you your team requires. Again, they're going to be contextual to the team. And then from there, you can start saying, okay, how can we create environments that that develop that develop the ones we need for the team members we already have? And oh, by the way, we're gapped, right? We need we need a little bit. So by the way, the, the other thing about these, these others is patience, impatience. Um, all those three, to have both on a team, phenomenal, right? right. That's, you know, because my wife is, I'm patient. My wife is impatient. You know, right. during our 20 year marriage, when patience is required, I step up and take lead. Uh, when impatience is required, she steps up and takes yeah. lead, right? So to have the polarity on those others is really important. So you can figure that out too. Really enjoyed this book very much. Uh, Rich Divini. I would encourage anyone to take a look at it because there is so much to learn and uh, I really um, appreciate it. Thanks well, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, been awesome. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. <laughs>